welcome. Um, a couple weeks ago, Dan asked me if I would come speak this morning, and uh, I wanted you to know I had a couple of thoughts, but the first thought that I had, and I mean this with all sincerity, is I wanted, um, I guess honestly, to get up here on a Thursday morning, amen, was not the uh, idea of a lot of fun for me, but I wanted to, to do this because I wanted to tell Dan, and I want to tell amen as a group how much I've appreciated what Amen has done in my life for the last 10 or 12 years. And so one of the objectives of me being here this morning is simply as a way of saying thank you to Second Presbyterian Church and Amen, uh, because I don't, there isn't anything in my life from a spiritual teaching standpoint that has done more for me than coming to Amen for the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, I kid with my wife sometimes that Amen is the greatest resource the city of Memphis has to offer its citizens. Uh, right up there with our water and the blues, and I really mean that. I really mean that. And so, um, so just being here has accomplished one of my objectives, is just to say thank you to, to this church for this. Uh, the second thing that, as I was thinking about my objectives for today, the second thing was simply that uh, I just hopefully in some small way might be an encouragement to, to anyone here, because I feel like I'm just one of you guys. I'm 44, married. For 15 years, I've got four daughters that go to Hutchison. I worked for 20 years at Morgan Keegan, uh, and I've been at Amen, sitting at the table you're sitting at for the last 10 or 12 years. And so I'm just—it's just like one of y'all up here speaking. And I, um, what I want to do is just through some stories and events and people that have greatly impacted my life, share those with you, and hopefully that one of those events might be an encouragement to you. Uh, so those are my objectives. As I was driving in today, I was talking to myself and praying and thinking about, all right, David, how can you just not mess this up today? And so I thought, well, I got two things, two ways that I can not mess it up. One is I got to show up on time, so I've, I've done that. And then the second way was I can't go long. So I've set my alarm on my watch for 725, so at a very minimum we'll be out of here before 730. Now here's what I want to do today. If any of y'all read the book, The Last Lecture, uh, The Last Lecture has become a very popular uh, it was a video and a book. The last lecture was done by Professor Carnegie Mellon, who was invited to give a talk called The Last Lecture. And it turned out he developed cancer, was given only a few months to live. And so the last lecture literally became his last lecture. And in it, he took about an hour, and he just went through, uh, to some degree, his life story, pulling out the truths of his life that he felt were the most important truths that he had experienced that he wanted to share for the last time that he was going to have that opportunity. Well, I'm certain this is my last amen, and so I'm going to do that. I wanted to look back over, not, not over my life, but over my spiritual life, and just pull out what um, uh, I call an aha moment, pull out aha moments that I've had since I became a Christian in 1988 when I was 24 years old, uh, and, share those, uh, and share those moments with you. Uh, those people or events that have greatly influenced me and have really changed my life, uh, and I wanted to share some of those with you. All right, let's get started. I'd love for us as a group, if you can read that, to read Psalm 71, uh, because I think it, it's a great mission statement for our lives. And it says this, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me. And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation and your might 
to all who are to come. And so in, in the spirit of Psalm 71, I hope to do that this morning. All right. Uh, I, I can't remember what day it was, what year it was even. It was probably 15 years ago. Uh, and I had become a Christian not long before. Uh, and I had a friend. I'd met a guy named Soup Campbell. And uh, many of y'all I know know Soup. And uh, Soup invited me to go to lunch one day at Wendy's right down here on Poplar. And uh, I can't remember the agenda. I can't remember why we were going to lunch. I don't remember anything we talked about except this one verse, really. As we were sitting there, Soup opened up his Bible, and he opened it up to Isaiah 50, verse 4. And he just shared with me that verse. I don't even know the context that he was sharing that verse with me. I just remember that he pulled out Isaiah 54, and it says something like this. It says, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens me as one who is to be taught. And when I heard that verse, again, I have no idea what Soup's point was really, other than the context, other than the words of that verse. But when he said that, something happened in me. I remember it like... Something just hit me, and when I heard that verse that God promises that morning by morning He'll wake me up and He'll teach me. No one else will teach me, but God Himself will teach me. Something happened in me, and it changed me in a, in a, in a moment. And I went home that evening, and I told my wife, I said, I had lunch today with Soup Campbell. I want you to read this verse that I read. This changes everything. And that night I went to bed, and, I, and my, my desire was is that God has really promised that he'll wake me up and he'll teach me himself from his word, and I want that in my life. And so I told my wife that. Uh, now, look, I'm not a morning person. Up until this point, I'm getting up at 7, 7.30, taking a shower and heading straight into work. And I went to bed that night, and I set my alarm for 6 o'clock in the morning, which I don't know that I'd really ever seen 6 o'clock in the morning up until that point. And the last thing I did before I went to bed is I laid in bed and I read Isaiah 54. And I said, Lord, your word promises that, uh, that if I ask, that, if I, that, I, that you will wake me up and that you will teach me from your word. And Lord, I want that. And will Isaiah 54 be a part of my life? So I went to bed. The next thing I know is I woke up, no alarm clock, just woke up on my own. And the first thought I had was, dadgummit my very first morning at this, and I've overslept. I mean, I failed on day one. And I turned my head and looked at the clock, and my clock read 5.55. And I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm easy this way, but I just started crying in my bed. Because in a, in a moment, I realized, at that very instant, I realized, look, I've never woken up at 5.55, I've never woken up at 5 o'clock in my life, and God has literally answered my prayer, that God promises that he himself will wake me up and that he was not going to let an alarm clock wake me up but he was going to do it himself and man with great enthusiasm it was like this is unbelievable God is real and he hears these prayers and he really does reply to people who through his scripture call him to keep his promise and he will wake me up and an alarm clock will not and in great enthusiasm I ran downstairs got to my kitchen table opened up the Bible to Genesis chapter 1 got out a, a journal and a pen because I'm thinking, all right, if God's really going to teach me, I need to be prepared to write something down here. And from that day on, have begun a, a habit and a lifestyle of reading God's Word in the morning and letting God Himself teach me. 
so my encouragement today is, is that, that may be a, a habit and a lifestyle for everyone in this room, but to the, degree, to, the, to the point that it isn't for any of you or some of you, my encouragement is to open up the Bible to Isaiah 54 and ask God, claim that for yourself, and ask God to, himself to be your teacher. And to begin today, if you haven't already, a lifestyle of daily morning time of reading his word. And I tell you what, what there, are, there are so many temptations and so many issues out there to pull you and distract, to distract us away from God and following after him and a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And if I don't have time reading his word in the morning, I mean, there, and it's not like this every morning, but, but many mornings it's a, it's, a, it's a sense of the spirit of God in my heart resonates with the Spirit of God in the pages of the Bible and affirms it. I mean, there are times when I feel like my spirit is talking to my head saying, David, this is real. David, this is true. This is good. Follow this. Go for this. And I need that to be able to walk out of my door of my house every day and to combat the temptations. I need the, I need the teaching and the encouragement every day as I walk out into the world that I know no matter what temptations I'm going to meet in this world, I know that that morning the Spirit of God has affirmed to me in my heart that this word is true and it's good to be followed and it's right. And so I encourage you to, to if, if, if we're not there, that we, we take that up in our own life. Um, all right, uh, this is Guo Qi. Uh, Guo Qi is a friend of mine that I met in China. Um, uh, I put this picture up here to explain or give a, a picture of culture. Here's Guo Qi. Never had a piece of pizza in his life, and so he doesn't know what to do with it. And so all he knows is to pick up a pair of chopsticks and eat pizza with chopsticks. And it just reminds me of, of an aha moment that um, it really came clear to me when we were living in China, and that is the power of culture. Uh, where it really hit me is I was on a campus sharing with a couple of guys. Uh, and we had met for a few times, uh, these two Chinese guys, and we'd gotten to be somewhat of friends. Uh, and so on this particular day that I was meeting with them, it, it was time for me, and I wanted to share the gospel with them. So I began to share the gospel with these two guys on their campus. Um, so I went, through the, I went through the gospel and came to the end of it, and one of the guys, one of the Chinese guys looks at me in, in broken English. I'm not going to imitate his broken English. But the guy looks at me and he says, David, I hear what you're saying. I think I understand what you're trying to tell me, uh, but I just have I just have to tell you that that um, the fact that you tell me that there is a God and He has a Son Jesus and His Son has lived a perfect life and died on the cross and raised from the dead so that I can have forgiveness and go to heaven. It took him a lot longer to say that than than I just did. He said, "I want you to know that what you're trying to tell me is the equivalent of you trying to tell me that two plus two equals five. I just, it's just impossible for me to believe this. And I said, well, really, tell me why. Why is it? And he said, well, every single person and every single authority figure I've ever had in my life has told me that there is no God, that evolution is a fact and science, and that when you die, life is just over. And so I have grown up my entire life with that being my truth. And you're telling me the exact opposite, and it is impossible, it is so incredibly difficult for me to believe anything that you're telling me. And when he said that, I, my immediate reaction was, was 
as I mentioned a minute ago, was the power of culture. I realized, of course, we all talk about culture. We know how to define culture. We know what cross-cultural work and ministry is. But at that very moment, I realized the incredible power of culture. What a, what a society and what a people and what a group and what a family, what influence that they can have in a person's life for their entire life. And, of course, in that moment, I was realizing the negative power of culture. Wow, what a, how incredibly negative, what an incredible barrier his culture has given him. And so it, it immediately produced in me this idea of, man, culture is incredibly powerful, and therefore, as a, as a husband and a dad and a father and a, and a worker, I have got to understand that culture is incredibly powerful, and I've got to understand that I can and should use culture in a positive way, I can and use culture as a benefit for good. I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I would just, as an encouragement to you guys, uh, because it's been such a great encouragement to me, I would encourage us to consider what culture is and to consider how to use culture in your own life, with your own family, in your business, in your neighborhood. So culture becomes this... Um, this proactive set of values that, that, we, that we have. What, what is it that we want to affirm? What is it that is our value? What is it that we want to produce in the people that we live around? And to, to develop things, to develop traditions, to develop activities that support and grow a positive culture so that we, in our families and in our, employ, in our employment situations, that we can have a culture that combats the negative culture of the, oftentimes, the negative culture of our world. Um, so for example, let me talk about family for a second. Um, one of the most helpful ahas I've had in, as it relates to culture and in our family has been a concept, been an idea of influence. Um, the idea of influence and what I mean by that is um, in a family uh, it's incredibly important, as I'm growing up and learning, I'm realizing that in a family, it's incredibly important to realize what is the long-term objective of what I'm trying to accomplish as a dad. And one of the things that I'm not trying to accomplish as a dad is I'm not trying to have a competition with any of you to have the best um, behaved, most obedient five-year-old or eight-year-old or ten-year-old in the world. That's not the long-term objective. And I think we all can realize that if we're stern enough and strict enough and lay down the law hard enough with our kids, our kids will be incredibly well-behaved when they're 5 and 10 years old. But, but when it comes to culture and family, what has become clear to me is that the, the long-term goal is not a well-behaved child. The long-term goal is that, that when they're 22 years old, we have obedient, godly, kingdom-minded boys and girls. And the way to get there is not through authority. The way to get there is through influence. And so as we're, um, as we're raising our kids and families, or as we're raising to some degree, as we're influencing our, our grandkids, that what I've, what I've begun to realize is that I need to grow every single day in releasing authority and increasing influ in influence in my child, in our children. And so I have to parent towards the concept of, reducing authority and increasing influence. And so as I'm building, as I try to build a culture, which is what we're talking about here, within my family, I'm trying to build a culture of influence. And I've come to realize that a culture of influence comes by your children having respect 
for you, that respect becomes the key in the family. And it's important to teach respect to the kids because if they don't respect themselves and they don't respect you, then all, you know, it's just incredibly dysfunctional and chaotic. And so two things that come to mind is I try to build respect, a respectful culture of influence within my family. And that is this. Number one is that as a dad and a parent in my family, I have to be about, number one and most importantly, a culture of unconditional love and acceptance with my kids. Uh, Sunday was Father's Day and Annie, my second oldest, wrote, wrote me a letter and told me she loved me and that I was the greatest dad in the whole world. And, uh, and she listed about seven things uh, that, that um, she thought of when she thought of me. And number one, she said, Dad, uh, thank you for not getting mad at me about my grades and my sports. And when I read number one, I thought, well, this is number one. This is the first thing that came to her mind. And the first thing that came to her mind was that she recognized and felt unconditional love from her dad, that it didn't really matter what her grades were, and it didn't really matter how she performed in her sports activities. What she knew is that regardless of her performance, her dad absolutely loved her. And when we as dads and men and grandfathers are building a family culture, it has to begin with absolute and unconditional love that is not merited on performance. Kids pick up on that. And secondly, though, as we're building a culture of influence that's based on respect, the second part, and other than unconditional love, is that we have to be men with incredible strength. That have, that have values that we communicate and we hold our kids accountable to these things that we desire for them. So, so there's not only this sense of unconditional love, but there's also this sense of strength and, a, and authority that we hold our kids to a standard and we teach values through our parenting. Um, kids do not want permissive parents. And, and parents, um, I cannot be a dad who whose motivation is to just simply keep my kids happy and let them do anything they want to do. Kids want parents that, that stand for something. Whether or not they tell you that, whether or not they act like that, I guarantee you, I can see it in my children, that they want to know that Dad Gummit, their dad, is strong and he has values and he stands for something and they cannot get out of line. And so it's this, it's this double standard, not in the means that they're opposite, but it's this double standard that in building family culture it is this unconditional love, yet at the same time there is this strength of value and character that we make them understand and recognize and adhere to. And in that, they respect that, and, and in that respect, then you have great influence with your kids, so that as they turn into teenagers, you get, you get the picture. Uh, the reason I have this picture up here is it was taken about two weeks ago uh, in the Quetico National Park. Uh, in Canada, I went up there with uh, my brother-in-law and his kids, and my brother and his son and uh, a friend and his son. Had a great experience. Ross, my nephew, took this picture from the front of the canoe in McVicker Bay. Um, and I, I put that up there to remind me to tell you that, that when we went up there, I had dinner. Before we went into the park for this canoe trip, uh, four of us had dinner. We went up early and four of us had dinner, my brother-in-law and his two sons. And they have a, I, I feel like they have an incredibly strong family. And so while we were at dinner, uh, I wanted to take the opportunity. I'm rarely with just the three of them and alone and sitting at dinner. And so I asked John and Will, I said, guys, I, I see in you. For one, I just wanted to encourage them. I said, John and Will, I see in you guys that y'all really do have a strong family. And I, I admire that. I want you to know as an uncle, I really admire the, 
the strength that you guys have as a family. And so, John, I don't want to hear from you, Jack. John, I want to hear from you two kids. Tell me, what is it that has produced a strong family? What, what would you say is the most important factor in your family being strong? And without a hesitation, John said, family dinners. And I said, what do you mean? He said, since we were born, we've eaten together as a family every night of the week. Six out of seven nights a week, we sit down as a family and have dinner together. And I was like, wait, you guys have played sports since you're little kids. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you do that? And he said, well, whenever the last person got home, we sat down for dinner. If it was 9 o'clock at night, we had dinner at 9 o'clock at night. If it was 7 o'clock at night, we had dinner at 7 o'clock at night. But we were going to sit down and talk and laugh and enjoy one another over dinner every single night. And uh, uh, Will answered. He also said family dinner. But the other thing that came up from that was that they said having an incredibly strong youth group for them to be a part of. It was one of the greatest helps that they had in being a strong family. So I went back to my hotel room and I just wrote down notes from that dinner and I wrote down strong family, strong friends, and strong leaders are the key to parenting. Building a culture that, that develops respect and influence among your kids is incredibly important within your family. One way to do that, one important way that, that we love to do in our family is through family dinners. Ensuring that your kids have strong friends and that you know your kids' friends well enough to where you can know which ones are the ones for your kids to hang out with and not is incredibly important. That You do whatever you can to make sure your kids have strong friends. And thirdly, put them in a position where they can meet and get to know strong leaders where there can be 20 and 30 year old people in their life that are telling them the same values and character traits that, that you exhibit and you want them to have. Uh, is building a, a family culture. Um, so, all right, in 2000, I went to work at a place called SOS. Uh, I gotta make it very clear, I'm, I'm not the founder of SOS. Uh, it was founded in 1986, but Nonetheless, I did go and work there from 2000 to 2005, um, and I learned an aha, I had an aha moment there that has changed my life, and it went something like this. Uh, for the first couple of summers, that second or third summer I was there, for both those summers, I would say things didn't go so smoothly. Uh, particularly, what we would do is we would hire 40 college staff to come and work at SOS for the summertime. And so it's, it often can be quite dysfunctional to have 40 college kids coming and living in these tight quarters for 10 weeks in a row and waking up at 6 in the morning and going to bed at 11 at night and working out in the hot sun all day. And it would just become very, it could be very, very difficult. And there were a couple of summers in there where it just didn't really, uh, you know, the, 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 the camp and the ministry went fine, but internally there was just great dysfunction. And I was really discouraged and I didn't really know what to do. And uh, I was very humbled by the whole situation. Uh, and so one, one evening in the fall, after a couple of summers of this, there was a leadership retreat down at SOS. We weren't putting it on, just a group was coming in to have this retreat, and they had invited a guy named Eli Morris to be the speaker. Eli is one of the pastors out at Hope Prez. And so I went that night to, uh, to be a part and listen, and Eli got up and started talking, and Eli told a story about a friend of his. I can't remember the guy's name, we'll call him John, and Eli said that John was a Young Life leader. Eli got to meet him through Young Life. Went to Windy Gap, which is a Young Life camp. 
And uh, he said, let me tell you about John. He said, John played college basketball at the University of Tennessee. He's one of the greatest basketball players I've ever seen. He is the funniest human I've ever met. He's constantly telling jokes. Everybody's laughing. He's got the greatest personality I've ever seen. And John's one of the greatest speakers I've ever heard. He would be the camp speaker and would mesmerize people. He was the most effective speaker we've ever had. And he said, I would go to camps where John was, and I would be around him for the whole week. And he said, let me tell you right now what I remember about John. He goes, I know he was a great basketball player, but I can't tell you right now one move or one dunk or one score that he ever made in a basketball game. And he was a funny guy, but I promise you, I can't tell you one joke that he ever told. I just remember laughing, but I can't tell you one thing he ever said. And I know he was a great speaker, and everybody loved him, talked about what a great speaker he was, but I can't tell you one thing that he ever said in all of the talks that I've ever heard him speak. And Eli told this group of high school kids, he said, the only thing I really remember about John is that every single breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he had an apron on, and he had a pitcher of water and a pitcher of tea, and he walked through a group of 500 kids at Windy Gap Camp, and he filled up every glass of tea and water at every meal at every camp. And he said, what I remember about John is that he was a servant. Kind of like my lunch with Soup Campbell at Wendy's. When he said that, it was, a, it was a lightning bolt. I mean, I remember thinking at that exact instant, I remember thinking, that's it. That, that's the answer. That's what's been going on around here. That's what two years of really tough summers with all of this dysfunction going on among our staff is because I have not been a servant and it hit me at that moment, I know what I'm going to do. This happened in, this, this uh, weekend was in September, and I knew at that exact moment, I knew what was going to change next May and June when our staff came the next year, is that I had to model servanthood, that that was, the, that was the key and the answer to the dysfunction that was going on around here. And so, um, and, and not only was it that I was going to take on this attitude of servanthood, I knew exactly the way that it was going to happen. Because the previous couple of summers, all these staff lived together, and they got two bathrooms up there, a guy and a girl's bathroom, and I didn't really mandate that anybody clean them. And the entire summer was one big, I'm exaggerating here for effect, but essentially the, the entire summer was about griping over who was going to clean the bathrooms. And the bathrooms would get so, the staff bathrooms would just get out of control, and who's going to clean them, and what, this and that, and just griping, and nobody do it. And, all. and I knew when Eli said that, I knew exactly what to do. And so when June rolled around, staff got there. During our staff training week, one of the guys who had been there the year before raised his hand and said, hey, David, what are we going to do about cleaning the bathrooms? And I just, I just I said, I will deal with that. And I didn't, I didn't touch that one. So camp start. They leave the building at 8 o'clock to go out into the neighborhood. And day one, I was going to go up there every day at 9 o'clock in the morning and clean the staff bathrooms, the girls' and boys' staff bathrooms. And... And, of course, I began to notice that people noticed that, wow, the bathrooms are incredibly clean when we came back from, from the work sites. And one day I'd gotten up in the morning to read before I went down to work, and I was in John chapter 13, which, of course, is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and went into work, and 9 o'clock in the morning going to the bathroom, and I'm down on my hands and knees cleaning out the junk in the toilet bowls. And my mind went back to John chapter 13, and I was thinking, man, washing people's feet was something nobody would be willing to do because of how filthy that was. Well, that, that doesn't really apply as much today in the way that we wear shoes and walk and 
so forth, but, but at least at SOS, nobody is willing to scrub the inside of a toilet bowl. We've had two years of people fighting over who won't clean. And I'm sitting there thinking, in some sense, cleaning out the inside of a toilet bowl is the equivalent of washing people's feet a couple thousand years ago. And I just read John 13, and I start just weeping as I'm scrubbing the toilet and the shower stalls and picking out the hair out of the drain. And I'm just weeping over identifying with Jesus. And I started, think, I started thinking, this is the... I, started, I, I was allowed to wake up this morning and read John 13, and then I was allowed to come in here and clean out the staff's toilet bowl, and I get to get on my hands and knees and pick this stuff out, and I get to kind of, in a really small way, relate to what Jesus did to his disciples. And this is the coolest thing in the whole world, and I love this. I, I can't, I never would have thought how much joy and pleasure I get as a human for cleaning out a toilet bowl. And I'm sitting here crying and scrubbing and thanking the Lord that He lets me be a servant like He was a servant and that I can understand Him a little bit better as all this is happening. And as, I, as all this is going through my mind, the door opens. And I realize that I'm, you know, I'm busted because this has all been a, you know, clandestine effort that nobody knows who's cleaning the staff bathrooms and I'm in the I'm in the bathroom stall and I hear the door open and a guy named Tyler Downey walks in the door and Tyler about two years ago was killed in a car wreck uh, and Tyler walks in the door and he takes a couple steps and he sees me cleaning out the toilet and I and I'm, I'm acting like you know I'm just going about my business not and I and he walks in and he and he gets to where he can see me and recognizes that I'm the one that's been cleaning the toilets and he's kind of walked in on me and I hear this he goes <gasps> and he literally took his breath away and it, at that moment I thought man what a joy to live life in such a way to serve and love people in such a way that it literally takes their breath away and I, I tell you, it was absolutely transformational, if that's a word, that when Tyler Downey and then therefore the whole staff finds out that the director is cleaning out their toilets, I had license to ask them to do anything. There wasn't anything I couldn't ask them to do if I was willing to clean their toilets. And, and, and immediately a spirit of servanthood and love just falls through the entire staff. And talk about culture. Man, a culture was just built at SOS of just, of, we called it SAC, S-A-C, which back then when the Iraq war was starting was, was the term for shock and awe campaign. And it just became a shock and awe at SOS of people just fighting over each other to love and serve one another because a culture of servanthood had been built. And I've realized at that moment that, man, servanthood is a, big deal. Nobody likes a jerk. Nobody likes it when people take themselves too seriously. Nobody likes it when people are unwilling to do things because they think they're above them. And so as we, as we think and build culture, uh, one of my greatest aha moments has been that my, I want my life, whether it's at SOS or where I work now or with my family, for my life to resonate servanthood. Um, all right, let's keep going. Oh, okay.
Wow. All right. Uh, we're not going to get through all these. Uh, this, is, this was a great moment in my life. Uh, when we were living in China, uh, my kids went to school at a place called Kunming International Academy. And one day, my first grader at the time, a girl named Ruthie, uh, Ruthie had a, their class had to deal with a dad gets to, a parent gets to come and read a book to a class. Uh, and so I, my day came and I got on my bike because we didn't have a car and I rode my bike to school to be the dad who read the book for the day. And so when I got there, I asked Ruthie, I said, Ruthie, would it be all right instead of reading a book, can I just tell a story? She goes, oh yeah, dad, you can tell a story. And I said, all right, Ruthie, let's, we're going to do the, the two-word story. And she goes, oh, okay, okay, dad, that's great. Let's do the two-word story. Well, the two-word story is a game that I play with the kids at night where I'll lay down with them, put them to bed, and I'll say, Ruthie or Mary Van or whatever, give me two words. Any two words you can think of, just say two words, and whatever those two words are, then I'll tell a story about those two words. And so, Ruthie, we're going to do the two words story. Okay, great, Dad. So we sit down, and in her uh, first grade class, there's 12 kids. There's seven boys and five girls, I think. And, uh, and so I said, all right, I'm going to tell a story today. Uh, it's the two-word story. I need somebody to give me two words. And so one of the kids said, sleep. And one of the kids said, Bible. I said, okay, great, sleep and Bible. And so I began to tell a story. And so I went into some crazy story about this family of 12 children. And the family had seven girls and five boys. And they lived out in the woods of Canada. And as I started explaining the family dynamics, you could see that the kids kind of looking around. It was, it was 12 kids and it was 12 of us and seven boys and five girls or whatever the number was. And there's, wow, there's seven of us and five, five girls. And, and they kind of perked up and got excited. Wow, that sounds, like, that sounds like us. And told the story living in the woods and uh, out in Canada, and there was a forest fire, and they couldn't get wake, uh, awoken. And uh, they had two dogs, and the names of the dogs were Sleep and Bible. And Sleep and Bible broke into the house and pulled the kids out and rescued them, and the fire came and destroyed the house. And so the family had to move out of Canada, and they all moved to Kunming, China, and they're all in first grade at Kunming International Academy. And they looked around and they're like, whoa, that, he's talking about us. And instantly when I finished that story, all tw I mean, it was like just an, an explosion. I mean, as soon as I finished telling them that they all moved to Kunming, China, and they were all first graders in the same class at Kunming International Academy with so-and-so as their teacher, they're like, it's us. And they all stood up and they rushed me and they all came and just tried to tackle me and gave me this big hug and the teacher grabs the camera and takes a picture of that right there as soon as the sleeping Bible story is over. Well anyway I get on my bicycle and I'm heading back home and I'm sitting there thinking what just what just happened? I mean they just went absolutely berserk and I'm sitting there processing it. I'm thinking what why why were they so excited? Why were they so into it? And and of course naturally as it would with you too it hit me it was like it's, it's because I put them in the story that the father, the dad, came to the class and told his story, but it wasn't just his story. His story was their story, and they were the main characters. They were the pieces of the puzzle of the story. And men, that's the, that's the big picture in life. The big picture in life, if you want to get way up there, the very biggest thought you can have is that thought of the big picture, which is God himself, the Father, has a story, has an agenda, has a purpose. And he really is telling his story throughout all of human history. 
And his invitation and his plan is that he writes the story with you as the characters. You are the main character. He literally is writing out a purpose and an agenda through human history. And he's using 12 kids, 7 boys and 5 girls in Kunming, China as the main characters. He's using all of us in this room as the main characters of his story and history. And if you will take that up for yourself and recognize that we're not just passerbys, we're not just non-interested observers, but that, dadgummit, we are the characters, we are the story, we are the people that, are, that he's working through to accomplish his vision and agenda, well, then it just absolutely transforms your life. It makes all the difference in the world. It, this was one of the greatest aha moments I've ever had in my life when I woke up and realized, when God woke me up, right through the teaching at Amen primarily, when I realized is that, wow, God is real and He created me and He owns me and He has a purpose in life and He calls me to come and be about that purpose and to take upon myself His purposes and to live that out in my life. And he calls me to give up, all right, get this, he calls me to give up my little purposes and my little stories and to realize that my story is really a no story and that his story is the story and that he calls me to just die and do away with all my little petty agendas of, of, of money and materialism and social prestige and reputation and all these things that are David Montague kingdom building and he calls me to just do away with that stuff and take up real kingdom building which is his kingdom and I get to be a part of it and it absolutely changes your life from, from boredom and wondering and wandering and why am I here and what's the purpose and I got how many years to live and then I'm dead what's all this all about and it absolutely transforms you to this person who is filled and alive with purpose and significance and I don't, I don't have to wake up anymore and wonder why in the world am I here and what am I going to do today because I know why I'm here and I know what I'm going to do today and that is I'm going to learn God's story and take it upon myself and live it out in my own life as best I can through faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit and that's the, that's the biggest aha I've ever had in my whole life um Don Jordan paid me 20 bucks to put the holiday ad right here. <laughs> All right. Um, I put that up there just as a reminder that, that our role in life is to not be the owner of holiday ham and turkey. Our, our, our job in life is not to be an owner. Just like if you walk into holiday, Don and Trey Jordan own the place. The people working there are just managers. And it would be absolutely insane at the end of the day for all the employees and all the managers to open up the cash register and take the money out and put it in their pocket and go home for the day. It's called stealing. And that's the big picture. That's the vision is that, it, is that I'm just a manager. I'm just a servant. I'm just a steward. And I come into work every day and I work really hard for the profit of Don Jordan. And when I leave at the end of the day, I'm not emptying out the cash register. I'm working so that Don gets rich, not so that I get rich, right? That's, that's, the big, that's the vision of life. That's the big picture, guys, is that we're just managers of what God has given us. And we, we wake up every day and go, and go to work 
working out his story in our life for his profit, for his gain, and for his glory without any real look towards what's in it for us, what's in it for us. All right, and so uh, here's, uh, and so what are the implications of that? Uh, I won't tell you the significance of the picture, but the, the idea is that, man, that, this vision for life that I've just gone a few minutes into brings freedom. And here's, here's what I, I literally think about this, I would say, every single day. And I heard it right here, and, it, and I remember sitting at a table about right here when Sandy started talking about this and 10 years ago, and it just absolutely wowed me. And I remember thinking, why am I not standing up cheering like at a Tennessee football game right now? This is unbelievable. When I heard this truth for the first time, which is this, that David... God is real, and He created you, and He created you for a purpose, and that is to be about His kingdom and not your kingdom. And your life is really, really short. In fact, the Bible says your life is but a breath, right? And so I got four kids, and every time we drive to the beach, my kids are holding their breath going over the bridges, you know? <gasps> and I figure out they can do it for about 30 seconds. And so I'm realizing from reading the Bible that my life really is about 30 seconds long. And then I'm going to die and then go to heaven. And every desire that my heart has ever had is going to be fulfilled completely in eternity. And, and, so, and so the big picture is this. Look, this, I'm just regurgitating right here. But it has absolutely changed everything. That if I really believe that my life is 30 seconds long and then I'm going to die and live forever and have all of my needs that God has placed in my heart fulfilled in eternity, then I no longer need anything today. I'm free from neediness. Man, and when Sandy says this, it just kills me. I just explode. It's like I've just lost 20 pounds of neediness off my shoulders. And he begins to explain it. And I'm like, this is the most unbelievable stuff I've ever heard. He says to me, he says, do you realize that when you die, you inherit everything? And so if you've got everything in the universe coming to you, when you get to heaven, what do you need for the next 30 seconds? You don't need anything. And he says that, and I'm thinking, wow, materialism is just absolutely blown up. And... He, and when you get to heaven, you realize that you're engaged today to the perfect spouse. And when you get to heaven, you have this wedding with Jesus Christ. And if you really will believe that, if I will believe in God's promise that I have Jesus Christ as my spouse, wow, that's my time or we got to go. If I really will believe that, then you know what that means to me is I'm no longer needy in the sense that I have to have a perfect spouse, which means that if my wife is not perfect, if she doesn't please me perfectly, I don't really care because I don't need her to please me perfectly. And I realize that in about 30 seconds, I have the perfect spouse I've always wanted and needed. And so I can, my, let me put it this way better, my wife can put up with me the imperfect spouse for the next 30 seconds because she's got a perfect husband coming. And so I don't have to get angry or bitter or frustrated over an imperfect spouse because I've already got one. 
And if I'll just be patient and wait about another 15 seconds, because I'm already 44 years old, then, I'll, then I've got everything I've ever hoped for. Okay? Social position, prestige, Christmas parties, who gets invited to what? I, who cares? The most, popular, uh, the most popular, the greatest person in the history of the world is my best friend. I no longer need your invitation to your party to make me feel like I've got friends in high places. And when I hear this stuff, it absolutely changed everything so that now it frees me up so that now I can wake up in the morning without having anxiety and stress and worry about this and that and all, all these kind of things. I've got everything I could possibly hope for coming in 15 seconds and all I have to do is be patient. I can be about delayed gratification. I can just wait. And if things don't work out exactly the way that I want them to work out, it's perfectly fine. And you know what that does? And so here's the key to that, and then we'll, and then we'll go. Uh, the key to that is, is that now, if I'll believe these promises of God and take them on and live for His kingdom and be patient and wait for all of these things to be fulfilled in heaven then now I can be transformed for these next 15 seconds that I've got left to live here. I can be transformed from a person that's always looking at you and other people from a standpoint of what can you do for me. And I now, I, you can't do anything for me because Jesus has done everything for me. So now all I have to worry about is what can I do for you? It totally changed, it cha radically changes, it radically changed my paradigm from a what can you do for me person to what can I do for you person. And all I really care about is how can I love and serve. You know, I say all and every. I mean, I use these hyperboles. You know it doesn't work out like this every day. I mean, I struggle with this stuff all the time. But at least when I fail, I can talk to myself and say, David, remember, you got it all coming to you. You don't need this. You don't need that. You don't have to have this. You can be patient. You can wait. And so remember, as you relate to people, man, it's just how can I love you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? How can I encourage you towards Jesus Christ? That's all that I really have to have in life. That's the big picture. And then let me just skip through and let me try to... I'm sorry, I look at all this stuff we missed. Um, I want to... As you go out in the world, let me tell you this because I, it's, it's funny, it's a great story. If t 12 years ago, when I first started coming to Amen, I'd go home and tell my wife what I learned at Amen every day. And, uh, and so on Father's Day 15 years ago, my wife gives me a present. And the present is, is that you get to have lunch with Sandy Wilson. And, uh, and I was, you know, 30-something-year-old guy. And um, uh, so I come here to pick him up. And, of course, I'm scared to death. And, uh, and have no idea what he thinks. I, first of all, I can't believe my wife has done this. I have no idea what to think about Sandy being asked to be a a Father's Day present to some guy that's not even a member at his church. And so, but she's made it, and I'm thinking I'm going to be even more embarrassed if I cancel because I'm embarrassed, and so I just, I got to show up. So I show up, and sure enough, at 12 o'clock, he comes bounding out of his office. I'm in his waiting room. He comes bounding out of his office with this big smile on his face, and he says, hey, oh, Dad, this is great. I've never been a Father's Day present before. This is so fun. Shakes my hand, introduces himself to me. Where do you want to go? And, I, and so I, we get in the car, and we go down to Rafferty's down here, and I'm thinking again, how do I not blow this lunch? Well, the most important thing for me to not blow this lunch is he's the busiest man in the city. I got to have him back at one o'clock. So we're at Rafferty's and we're talking and I'm, ha you know, every few minutes I'm doing this kind of deal right here. And, uh, you know, about two thirds of the way through lunch, I said, Sandy, it's getting close to one o'clock. I want to get you back by one. You know, we need to kind of be heading that way. 
and he's kicked back after eating his fish, and he's got his legs crossed in the back. He says, oh, all the time in the world, I'm on your schedule today. It's your Father's Day. And uh, so we talk to 1.15, 1.30, and then we get in the car, and we come back here to the parking lot right here, and, and you know, you pull in, and it's now 1.30, been an hour and a half. He didn't get out of the car. He's just sitting there like, what's chat? So we chat for about 10 more minutes in the car. And I'm thinking, this, this is unbelievable. And so as a thank you present, I wanted to give him a book. And so I give him a book, and he's holding it and all that. And he gets ready to get out of the car. He says, oh, by the way, hey, do you mind, would you, would you sign the book? <laughs> sure, sure, Sandy, I'll sign it. Hey, kiddo, keep up the good work. <laughs> David, number 41. And uh, I give him the book back. He's like, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And he went on to his office. And like the story from Eli and the guy, John, I can't tell you, essentially, I can't tell you one thing that Sandy and I talked about at lunch 15 years ago. But I don't think, obviously, I've never forgotten the degree of grace and graciousness that he showed to me. I mean, just an idiot, 30-year-old idiot, who's not even a member of this church. And he showed this incredible grace towards me. And so I just, as we go out into the world... I want to close with that because as we go out in the world trying to live out God's story and our own story, we can tend to get really self-righteous and we can tend to get very judgmental. In fact, if you've read the book or heard of the book Unchristian, non-Christians that are between the ages of 18 and 29, 87% of them classify or consider Christians as judgmental and hypocritical. That's the view of Christians among non-Christians. And so I just... Sandy was a great example to me, and I encourage all of us that as we go out into the world and living God's story in our own lives, that we first and foremost do it from a great spirit of graciousness as we interact with other people, not taking ourselves too seriously. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time, the opportunity. We thank you for your word that does give us a, a, a point and purpose in life and how to live, and we're thankful that you give us that direction. We pray for courage and faith to live it out well, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.